0: Good evening to you all. A while back I was uh, talking to some of my fellow teachers and we were talking about what we should call these times when we get together with you individually. And uh, Some people thought um, we could call them meetings. Or some people thought, well, maybe you should call it um, interviews. And somebody said, well, no, neither one of those really sound quite right. It seems like there should be like some kind of third thing that we call them but we really couldn't come to agreement about what that might be. So we do call them interviews. And one of the things that came up in this conversation was the realization that for many people, the word interview has a certain kind of resonance, right? Because we can sometimes associate it with other times we've had interviews. And those might be times like when you're applying for a job and your income is at stake, or when you're auditioning for a part as a musician or as an artist or something, or when you're having exams for school, or perhaps being screened by border security, (laughs) or uh, You know, the valence or the resonance might be like going to the the dentist. You know, that kind of feeling (laughs) like I'm going to go and they're going to check me and they're going to have sharp pointy things in my mouth and (laughs) I should be very careful. (laughs) And it's true in these meetings with teacher interviews, whatever you want to call them, it can feel a bit like going to see a therapist or uh, going to confession to a priest, or talking to a, a confidant, or maybe you might experience more like being in front of the judge, and they are going to decide, you know, whether you're going to go to the slammer or whether you're you're going to be released to, to go about your way. So it's good to have some clarity around what's actually going on in this process of working individually with a teacher. And this talk is going to be about what's actually going on in that process and how both people can contribute what's most useful to that conversation that is taking place. Actually, if I was going to say briefly what interviews are, I would say it's a two-person joint Dharma inquiry. The main purpose of us getting together is something called investigation, which is the second factor of awakening. It follows right after mindfulness in the sequence of the seven factors of mind that lead to liberation. And this uh, investigation, also called uh, Vichaya, is something that we do together in the interview, each person learning from the other. So let's take a little bit of time and look at investigation and in what this piece is, given that I've just said that that's what we're doing there, that's what it's all about. So if we're going to say, to investigate investigation, we'd say, this is the process through which wisdom arises. And if you remember uh, something basic about the, the Buddha's uh, understanding, It is that it is wisdom that actually liberates the mind. That that's what does it. It's not concentration as a standalone thing. It's not even mindfulness as a standalone thing. It's what arises in the mind in terms of its own understanding through direct seeing that actually frees us from what could be called discretionary human suffering. So I said investigation comes after mindfulness. So mindfulness is that receptive, immediate uh, knowing of experience. Experience as it arises at the six sense doors. When that mindfulness is present there in a more continuous way, the mind starts to notice some things in particular. It begins to become curious about what's happening and starts to see in a certain kind of way its own workings. So the system starts to see into its own working. It begins to realize how it creates suffering and how it can release it. And this quality of investigation is often called Uh, investigation of states or discerning the Dharma, seeing the truth that's present, that's operating within this contact with immediate and direct experience. When investigation is present and established, the wisdom factor is waking up in the mind and it's starting to open to understanding. And this wisdom ultimately leads to our liberation as it grows and starts to see into all the different ways our experience manifests and starts to, in particular, extract certain kinds of uh, universal noticings. It starts to notice impermanence. It starts to notice the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned experience, that it's incapable of providing lasting satisfaction, and starts to notice that we don't control it. Things happen because of causes and conditions. And in the immediate sense, we can't control what we're experiencing or what's going to happen next we get a little bit clearer about something that I've referred to previously, which is this whole question about what span of control we have as human beings, in what way, at what time. And the mind begins to let go of its current of resistance to, and uh, disconnection to, and uh, clinging to things the way it would like them to be and starts to be able to rest more and more just in immediate connection with how things are and how they're presenting themselves. From this comes a number of other things. The mind starts to get more discerning about what is skillful and what is not skillful. Or another way to put it is what is uh, wholesome Uh, is coming from wisdom, uh, uh, loving kindness, uh, letting go, and what is unskillful, states that are arising from greed, hatred, and delusion, which are suffering states in and of themselves, and which, if not seen and uh, uh, met skillfully, lead to other unfolding of suffering, in the immediate and longer term. So the mind starts to get more discerning about this and and starts to um, learn what is the wise or what is the skillful way to be with things, whether they're skillful or unskillful. What's the way to be with with this unwholesome state? What's the way to regard this wholesome state? It starts to figure out wise relationship to its own direct, immediate experience. With investigation, we also start to learn about our own personal conditioned patterns of suffering. So a number of you in uh, conversations with your teachers may have had conversations about uh, the basic Buddhist personality types and, and which one you seem to be predominantly in terms of what what way uh, suffering tends to arise in your mind. You know, is the mind primarily greedy when it's suffering? Is it primarily deluded when it's suffering? Is it primarily aversive when it's suffering? And in the seeing of those those conditioned dominant patterns, there can be a way where the mind is encouraged to take it a little less personally, right? Realizing that, okay, this is a conditioned pattern of how the mind fights with reality to try to basically get its needs met. It tends to React to unpleasantness if the, if there's aversion there. It tends to uh, glom onto pleasantness if there's a greedy tendency. It tends to go uh, offline if if there's a diluted tendency. And we ca- we talk often uh, when we talk about this kind of personalized conditioning uh, to remind you that everybody has all three of these strains. And that all three of these strains have the potential to take those individual tendencies of mind and actually purify the delusion inherent in them so that each one of these uh, types actually ripens in the direction of very beautiful and very wholesome qualities. With investigation, we begin to untangle our confusion about how we actually exist and begin to recognize thought as a phenomenon. We start to be able to see our thoughts as arising experiences happening at the mind door, rather than take every single thought that we have as us, or about us or very personal or something that we need to act on or something that we need to uh, believe in because after all we thought it. This, as you may have noticed since you've you've been here uh, more than a week and a half now, you can see what hell that is (laughs) really. (laughs) Have you noticed how wildly inconsistent your thoughts are? They're kind of like a really bad coach, you know? Go left, go left, go left. No, you screw up. Why'd you go left? Go right, go right, go right. Oh, that's not over here. What are you talking about? Why'd you just tell me over right? I'm doing it. Right? Okay, so maybe there's another relationship to thought. So, you know, in general, through this process of mindfulness establishing itself, and then investigation starting to arise in the mind, we start to come into contact with reality through grounded, immediate, and moment-by-moment seeing. And this is the process that ends delusion and the craving which springs from it. And in that is the birth of wisdom, and the liberation of the heart and mind. So let's talk about how the role of the teacher fits into this whole thing of coming to uh, wisdom, which ripens through your own direct investigation. Now remember, the Buddha said that the primary soft source of suffering is craving springing from delusion. Delusion is really at the root of it. It manifests as craving, deluded craving. But if you take it down to the nub, it's delusion. Which is not just a not knowing, it's an active misknowing. It's an active... Uh, view that's really way off. So if we say that delusion is at the bottom of it all, and delusion is not seeing clearly, not not understanding or seeing things a- a- the way they actually are, you can see that trying to see your own delusion is a little bit like trying to see the back of your head without a mirror. Right? You're looking for delusion through delusion. So, the role of the teacher is basically to help you bring online your own wisdom. And there's a lot that goes into that process. So let's talk first about the role of the teacher within Theravadan Buddhism. Some of you may have practiced in another setting where, for instance, when you came into the presence of the teacher, you would prostrate to show respect. Uh, You know, maybe you practiced in the Hindu tradition or in the Tibetan tradition where there's a, a guru wearing special clothes and and sitting on a throne. And this person is someone who's set aside as someone who's very special and uh, perhaps magical. And, and then devotion is, is shown to this person because this person is, in a sense, the doorway through which you enter into the truth. So a first clarification is, that's not us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if you were going to say, well, what is the role of the teacher uh, here? And we would say each one of us is what you would call a um, Kalyana Mita, which is, translates as spiritual friend. So we are practitioners slash teachers, and all of us are practitioners. I don't think any of us uh, claim to uh, be at the end of our path. We're practitioner teachers who are here to offer you instruction, guidance and support in the practice of insight uh, and metta meditation. And the main ways that we do that is through meditation instructions, Dharma talks, and the individual help that we offer in interviews. So I'm going to talk about interviews now and how I understand uh, the role that we have in supporting your investigation in the interviews. And I'll just say, this is my personal view. <laughs> and there are probably is, is, are some uh, range of views among the group. But th- this is my understanding of what it, it comes down to at the base. So if I was going to say what the specific role of the teacher is in our joint inquiry, which is how I hold interviews, there are a number of things. One is to make connection with you and help you feel connected and respected. Right? To have some kind of um, resonance with you to the, to the best uh, I can so that you feel that you can be uh, in a state of trust in regard to what's happening. And that's not a small thing, right? So another thing I think that's there is, it's my role to inquire about your retreat experience generally and specifically. So you could think of this as investigating your investigation. You're going to tell me about your investigation, and I'm going to uh, involve myself in investigating further what that actually is, and, and what you have noticed, and what you have understood from that. A major thing that is part of um, the encounter is helping to guide you to both report and to hold your experiences within the teaching framework. Help you report and hold your experiences within the teaching framework. So let me give you some examples of this. say you're walking the loop and you notice some things in walking the loop and you get very upset about some things walking the loop and you come into the interview room and you say something like there's something wrong with the people around here when uh, a glass breaks in their driveway and in the road they don't sweep it up. It's very thoughtless. Someone could cut their foot on that. In fact, I nearly stepped on a piece of glass and I think that, you know, there's something wrong with Americans. They don't sweep their driveways. All right. So my role at that point is to... Not to respond to you, probably, directly about whether people should sweep their driveways. My role at that point is to ask what you noticed about your reaction to that experience. So it would, kind, it would go like this. Something like this. It would go, hmm. Uh, when, when, uh, when you first noticed that uh, glass there, what was the immediate arising emotional state? Was it anger? Was it fear? What would you say that was? So you would say something back to me. It was damn careless, that's what it was. They left the glass in the driveway, right? (laughs) And I would say... So I would keep trying to to direct you back to the framework of the practice to tell me about your experience. And I might say something to you like, well, um, was there mindfulness there when you noticed it? At what point did you notice that you were afraid or offended or whatever. Um, you know, and when you noticed that you were afraid, um, was it primarily um, thoughts? Were they unpleasant? Or was it body? Was it, did you, was it like a body experience? Or was it a... Huh? See where this is going? I'm saying, okay, what was the current of mindfulness there in relationship to that? If there wasn't mindfulness there in relationship to that, that's not a problem. I would I would ask you, at what, I might ask you something like, at what point did you notice that state wash through? Or I might ask you something like, did that state uh, 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 get stronger as you walked the rest of the loop or did it or was it intermittent? Was it kind of there sometimes and not there sometimes? Or was it, right? So I'm pointing you, I'm investigating your state and I'm coaching you in the process about how you can investigate your own state. So I'll give you another example of that, that kind of thing. So of, of coaching people to stay in the practice framework and maintain mindfulness, and some capacity for investigation with things. Say I had a yogi come into the interview room and they said something like, I've been falling asleep, I've been falling asleep, it's just I've been sleepy, 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 sleepy since I got here. They really need to serve coffee here. What What is going on? How can I get some coffee? how can I get IMS to offer coffee? Because I'm sure there are a lot of yogis here that would benefit from coffee, and I'm not the only one. And I would be glad to make a contribution to kick off the (laughs) coffee fund at IMS. (laughs) Right? So you come in with suggestions for improvement. A little self-meta in there, maybe. Maybe it's mixed in there a little bit. A little sense desire. So, you know, my way of working with you would be to um, investigate that state. And I might ask you uh, what you noticed when that first arose in the mind. When that first started to happen, all the stuff about the coffee and wanting the coffee and there's no coffee, I I might ask you about that. Or I might ask you, if I was going to uh, do some on-the-job coaching, I might ask you right there in the room uh, to describe your state that you were actually happening then. So, uh, this state that you're having, uh, d- does it ha- can you describe the energy of it? Is there, uh, um, where do you feel the energy of this state in the body? Right? And uh, this energy that you're feeling, is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? Is it, um, uh, would you say it's wanting? Or would you say it's uh, irritation? Or what would you say it is? Can you tell me about it? And okay, if you're feeling this state now, now that you're feeling it, as, as we're just being here together, we're talking this experience, can you tell me what you're noticing right now? And then can you tell me what you're noticing now? And that, that uh, those body sensations, are they getting stronger? Are they getting weaker? Are they migrating? Are they changing in nature? on the spot, coach. Another thing that we help you to do to help keep you in the practice framework is we try to encourage you to let go of self-view as the lens through which you're uh, seeing this whole endeavor. So what do I mean by that? So if you come into the interview and you're having a hard time or maybe you're having a good, good, good time for now, (laughs) good time, and it's uh, the way you talk about it is very much caught up in... uh, a sense that what you're experiencing is a failure, that says something about you as a human being, I'm gonna knock you out of that, right? Because this is the way that we make this whole process very hard we see everything through the self-lens. So if we come in, say we had the experience, we had a sitting in the morning where the mind was, you know, relatively uh, tranquil and we felt like we were pretty present. And then we, we so then the, the self-view very often then owns that, right? Steps up, ooh. <laughs> I'm getting it and I got it now. I got it now. Okay, I got it now. I can. This will. Oh, I can extend and improve upon this. All right. You go into the next sitting or sitting in the afternoon. You sit down. And you arrange your blankets just the way you arranged them in the morning when you did. You did so well. You did so well. You do the same thing that you did in the morning and you have a completely different sitting and much more difficult. And layered upon that experience of that different sitting is the spackle of self-view that's telling you, you should be doing better than this you must have screwed up something cuz it was good in the morning and now you're screwed up and you screwed up and that's the kind of person you are that you screw up, you get it right and then you screw it up and it right? turns into a big story, a big painful story. Ah, you can see why the 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 understanding of not self is such a cooling bomb. But but the mind Takes a while to get it again, and this is all about the span of control confusion. So, some of the other things that we do is to guide you and support you towards making skillful effort. And the talk that we had last night, where we were we were talking about uh, Viria. Joseph gave a talk on Viria, And one of the things that he he said is this calls for courageous effort, wholehearted engagement, and all the rest of it. And then there was this whole second part of the communication, which tends to go in one ear and out the other because of our conditioning. That's an idiom for... Uh, English idiom, in one ear and out the other, it means it doesn't register. That's another idiom. (laughs) We forget it, okay? (laughs) We forget this nuance. So the nuance is what skillful effort is depends on the totality of the circumstances. Sometimes it can call for a light touch. Sometimes it can call call for a a ratcheting up of renunciation and energy. And sometimes just uh, a turning down of the striving energy. We help you stay skillful in terms of how you're making it effort and part of the way we do that is by uh, asking you or helping you explore what happened when you made certain types of effort right like if somebody comes in and and says I you know I came in I sat down and I I decided I was going to be on the breath for the whole sitting and I turned my awareness to the nostrils and I just kept it there and then uh you know, the next sitting I went in there and I was just completely exhausted and I had a hard time even staying in the room because I I was uh, alternating these states of like intense catatonic sleep with like this restlessness where I just wanted to get out of there. We would probably look at that and say, you know, I think you might have been trying a little too hard in that one sitting. So other things that we can do are to troubleshoot places in, the, in your practice where you're having a hard time you know, give you some practice tips. Like these are ways to work with uh, worry. This is what you can do uh, in terms of working with pain. This is how you might approach it. We can answer questions about the Dharma. We can clarify the uh, instructions that are given. And we can help point out to you dharma insights that are actually arising in, in your practice that are right there and just kind of semi, semi-conscious. They're, they're up there. They're happening. You're noticing it. You haven't quite figured out yet what it is and what it means. We can offer uh, a possible word for that for you to check out, for you to verify whether that actually is what it is or your experience, or is it something else altogether? So part of what we do is we keep you out of trouble and we get you out of trouble if you get into trouble. (laughs) And as time goes along, when we're working together, we customize your instructions. So we're going to have a few more days here where we're going to be uh, doing instructions in the, in the morning set. But increasingly, the instructions that are going to be given are going to be happening in the interviews, and they're going to be different for, for each one of you, because what's happening in your practice is going to be different. You know, this isn't uh, a one-size-fits-all kind of endeavor. So let's talk about the role of the student in the investigation, which would be you. So the first major thing is that in order for this uh, joint uh, investigation, to actually work, you need to be a full participant. So you actually provide the information that we need uh, to have for the dialogue by telling us what you notice in your practice. Then questions that we might have can help bring forth more understanding about what you're actually experiencing but you are really the prime source. So in order to do this, of course, there needs to be at least a provisional trust or a tentative trust um, in order to feel comfortable uh, doing that, really talking about what you're experiencing. And understandably, sometimes this is difficult. So, you know, it's not unusual to feel nervous or vulnerable or sensitive. And this is, this is really normal, especially if it's a teacher that you don't know well. And of course, another piece of it is you're in the silent mode now, right? You may have had the experience of finding it a little bit hard to find, start the talking parts up again, when you go into the interview room. And there might be a fear of being judged or being found out as being not good enough or something. And this is normal. So one big advantage of uh, having teachers who are also practitioners is that we've been through this and go through this on the other side of the role. So we go through this uh, in the role of retreatant and uh, student also, because we're also uh, still learning and developing our understanding and our, our own practices. You know, maybe you come in and you're, you're a little like, well, I don't know what to say. You know, what, where do I start? Where do I begin? Um... Or maybe in some cases you don't want the teacher to like interfere with what you're doing. So you don't want to say so much about what, what's happening. And, and I'll just make a few side comments here at, at, at this point about um, self-guiding your practice. So... Remember I said earlier that the thing about delusion is that uh, you don't know you're deluded. You don't know it's deluded. If you knew it was deluded, it wouldn't be delusion. And that that delusion is the primary problem, and it's very hard to say. And... Trying to guide yourself from like a book or a Dharma talk or some other resource that talks about how practice unfolds or how enlightenment happens doesn't work very well on retreat. And I'm mentioning this because often yogis come on retreat and they may have done some uh, reading or studying uh, and have some familiarity with uh, the meditative terrain And uh, be aware of things like, you know, the path of purification and the stages of insight and all the rest of that. And this information is interesting and it can be helpful sometimes. But when you're on retreat and you're working with a teacher, trying to guide your own practice using a map is not a good idea. Why is this inquiring minds may want to know it's because the maps are one description of how the mind can open and come to understanding it's one one description they are not necessarily accurate in all detail and they are not necessarily complete and they do not describe the process for everyone it's somebody else's Take on it. A retreat in sense of where they are in their practice is often very inaccurate. I suppose at this point if you if you think your practice is like, ooh, really bad, you may be happy to know that that could be inaccurate. So it's very often very inaccurate. So why is this? It's because generally you haven't traveled the terrain before. And I can say that with confidence you haven't traveled the terrain before because you've never experienced this moment before. Thinking where you know where you are when you're in uncharted territory is unreliable. So these maps, these maps of progress are a map. They're not a GPS, right? They're a map. They're not the little uh, blip that says you are here, you are here, you are here. You, if you're using a map and you're putting yourself on the map it's kind of dicey. What you can do is you can describe in the most basic way what you are actually experiencing that you need to be able to do how it's interpreted is very different thing and it's easy to mistake these maps for the living experience and then the mind gets very tricky because it tries to make the present experience conform to what it thinks it should be in order to get someplace. Have you noticed this tendency of mind? Kind of like, well, I've heard that, you know, if you get, uh, get calm to happen, if you can get calm to happen, then, you know, then the next thing that can open is concentration. So I'm going to, even though my mind is, uh, you know, raging with worry and my body is completely restless right now, I'm going to make it be calm. Right now I'm going to make it be calm because then if I get concentration, then everything will be okay. If you're trying to make the experiences you've read about or heard about happen in the immediate sense, you're splitting focus and making things unnecessarily complex, which means that the necessary receptivity, the receptivity that actually will cause your practice to open is lost and it's uh, replaced by a very fatiguing kind of striving. So there's a a classic story that a Dharma friend of mine told me about this tendency of mine. He said that at a certain point in his practice he knew what the seven factors of uh, enlightenment were. And so when he went on... retreat and was doing his practice he would try to work on each one in sequence work on it he would like try to make mindfulness happen and then he would try to make investigation happen and then he would try to make uh, energy happen and then try to make rapture happen and try to <laughs> he would go through the whole list and he said it was completely exhausting you know it was like this ma- this project 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 That when actually when he figured out that really what was called for is to actually establish mindful presence and keep doing that attending carefully to what was there as it was presenting itself (sighs) oh that's a little bit more possible still not easy but at least possible so you know a a map isn't the uh, the same thing as like a a scientific formula or a a recipe for baking a cake, that you just kind of follow it. This awakening process is more like a, a rose or a lotus opening rather than a manufacturing enterprise. So it's not a punch list. It's a surrender to the truth of a rising experience moment by moment. So the practice does you more than you do the practice. And as I I, uh, said in an earlier talk, this is a multi-dimensional thing that happens that touches our uh, senses, our five senses. It touches our emotions. It touches our uh, uh, thoughts. It touches every dimension of who we are as a human being. They are all involved in this opening. And you are the one that knows your direct experience the best. Your direct immediate experience the best. And that's what you need to uh, bring forward when you're working with your teacher. So this is what does work in terms of uh, retreat and participation in the interviews. Uh, Be authentic and forthright if you can. Meaning, telling the truth about what you're experiencing and how you're practicing just tell the truth this is a wonderful thing to actually be in an environment we can actually just tell the truth just tell the truth so part of this is that you need to know you don't have to take care of or worry about uh, the teacher in any way you don't need to protect us Right, you don't need to protect us from strong emotions that might be the truth of what you're experiencing. You don't need to, you know, worry about what we're going to think about you or any of that. We we can handle it. <laughs> we have had our own yogi minds. I it would be uh I don't know if this would be an encouraging or a faith-destroying exercise some night to have a dharma talk where the teachers told their favorite personal yogi mind stories but we've had we have them so if possible report your experience within the framework of the practice instructions so you know in other settings you might uh, be given a sheet that's called Guidelines for Interviews, that's very detailed about uh, what you need to do. And while we are not that structured, there's some things from here that can be really useful, which is tell us about the three aspects of your practice, your sitting practice, your walking meditation, and your daily activities. Um, If you can... Um, land on the main points or at least try to toss a few of them out there that would be really useful because it's 15 minutes which is um, a fair amount of time but not a lot. to the extent you can give us the facts of what it was. So, of course, there's a strong tendency of mind to evaluate how it's going. You know, oh, it's going good, or, you know, oh, it's going really crappy, or, oh, I'm not sure, you know. What we're really at is, what are, have you experienced that has led you to conclude it's going good? I, I've I had the experience of more continuity in mindfulness. I, I notice that uh, when mindfulness is lost and <clears throat> I remember uh, and awareness arises again, uh, the mind is um, not reactive let give that as an example of some, something that might be seen as a, a good thing what do you mean by good you know uh, because maybe what you mean by good is I had this sitting and there was lots of pleasant vedana felt really pleasant I felt like I was floating and you know or something like that or maybe if when you come in you say oh it's i it's really crappy it's really hard i would want to know well crappy in what what way <laughs> you know w- what are you experiencing actually what is it is it body dukkha and then the the mind gets reactive and has a hard time Uh, being aware of anything. You know, what is it actually that you're experiencing? Another point is, please don't conceal things, right? Or save the most important thing for last. Like, (laughs) people who are therapists sometimes talk about this, like how they'll spend an hour working with somebody and, you know, they'll be talking about, you know, working on that. And then in the, as the person's getting ready to get their coat and, and uh, purse and they're walking towards the door, they'll say, Oh, and by the way, you know, I, I'm feeling suicidal or <laughs> something. Bye. <laughs> All right. So, you know, the, the big stuff um, can be up front. And sometimes it, this isn't going to be coming forward in terms of the language of uh, report your experience and I sat and I felt the rising and falling of the abdomen and then I noticed that this, it, it could just be I, I am so agitated I'm ready to jump out of my skin. I haven't slept for three days. Okay, put that at the front, okay? Because it helps um, shape our understanding of the overall picture of what's going on there. So another way to put it, this kind of goes along with the authentic and honest piece of it. You can be real. (laughs) Okay? just... So, you may at this point be wondering how we figure out how to advise you. What specific instructions we give you. So you want to know the secret formula? Okay, here it is. What you tell us, verbally and non-verbally, so body language, energetics, Um, you know, what you speak, plus the teacher's dharma knowledge and meditation experience mixed with intuition and what actually arises in the present moment as we do this investigation together equals the advice and guidance that's offered. Right? So you see your contribution to this is Really key. It's a binary process, not uh, and doesn't really work unless uh, we're informed by your experience. So you can see this is a, a joint product, then, a dependent arising that comes forth. Uh, with involvement from both the teacher and the student. So I hope this uh, has been helpful to you in filling out an understanding of what's going on when we get together and and meet in the interest of um, your opening of your own wisdom eye through your own direct knowing. May your own investigation be done with wisdom and integrity and it may it ripen to complete liberation of heart and mind in this very life.